we do have these inner critics and they speak loudly to us. And I worry sometimes that when you're in the front of the room, you sort of can't hear the whisper in your ear that says, who is in this room with me? Who needs my attention? Who's at the corner space? Who's in the back? Who's in the dance circle? Who's sitting on the side? And they'd come in if you invited them. But if you don't invite them, they're not going to dance. That's why I said, I think you've got to have a confluence of forces of introversion and extroversion because people pay attention to different parts of what's going on, the different dynamics in a space. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. For quite a while, I've been troubled by what seems to be a dearth of moral leadership in the Jewish world in general, and in the Orthodox world in particular. Of course, that does not mean that there aren't wonderful, admirable leaders. It's not that they don't exist, but that in addition to these good leaders, there also seems to be too much incompetent, cowardly, or immoral leadership. For that reason, it was an honor and a pleasure to talk with Dr. Erica Brown about whether my impression is right, what constitutes good leadership according to Jewish sources, and how such leaders are cultivated. We discussed why there are different models of leadership in Jewish texts, some examples of leaders in Tanakh, including Yosef, Moshe, Ruth, Esther, and Kohelet, what's often called imposter syndrome, the importance of identifying talent and whether this involves favoritism, introverted versus extroverted leadership, the problem when institutional leadership protects itself rather than the people it ostensibly represents, rabbinic scandals and those who enable bad behavior, protexia, nepotism, charismatic leadership, and much more. We'll get to that conversation in a moment. First, subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum wherever you get your favorite podcasts, whether on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Audible, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And remember to rate and review. Nowadays, there is no better way to promote your company, your organization, your brand, or yourself than to have a podcast, as long as that podcast sounds great and is expertly produced. That's exactly what we do at JCH Podcast. So go to jchpodcast.com or write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. You will be thrilled with the results. Finally, I have been gratified and honored by the positive feedback I've received for this podcast, both publicly and privately, including when people disagree with either me or my guest. Anytime someone takes the time to reach out, I appreciate it, and I'm very flattered. As you know, it takes a lot of time and effort to produce every episode of The Orthodox Conundrum, from the preparation, to the recording, to the post-production. There's so much more that I want to accomplish through this podcast, including live events and more. I value the community that we've created together, and I invite you to support the Orthodox Conundrum through our Patreon site. Go to patreon.com slash jewishcoffeehouse, that's patreon.com slash jewishcoffeehouse, and help us to create a positive, God-centered, halachic, intellectually honest, self-aware, accountable, and welcoming Orthodox Judaism. Dr. Erica Brown is the Vice Provost for Values and Leadership at Yeshiva University and is the founding director of its Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs Herrenstein Center for Values and Leadership. She previously served as the director of the Mayberg Center for Jewish Education and Leadership at the George Washington University and as a scholar-in-residence for the Combined Jewish Philanthropies of Boston and the Jewish Federation of Greater Washington. Erica was a Jerusalem Fellow, an Avichai Fellow, the recipient of the 2009 Covenant Award, 
and is a faculty member of the Wexner Foundation. She has written or co-authored 15 books on the Hebrew Bible, spirituality, and leadership, and has been published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Tablet, First Things, and the Jewish Review of Books, wrote a monthly column for the New York Jewish Week, and is a consulting editor for the journal Tradition. Her latest book is Kohelet and the Search for Meaning. She currently serves as a community scholar for Congregation Eitz Chaim in Livingston, New Jersey. Erica has interviewed Isaac Herzog, the President of Israel, Madeleine Albright, David Brooks, Jeffrey Goldberg, Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt, David Gregory, Dennis Ross, David Makovsky, Sarah Hurwitz, Ruth Messinger, and Dara Horn, among others. She tweeted on one page of Talmud Study a Day at Dr. Erica Brown. She is the proud mother of four children, four in-law children, and five beautiful grandchildren. Dr. Erica Brown, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. It is a delight to be here. I'm not sure what conundrum you'll throw at me, but there are plenty, so uh, let's go. You think so? Huh, okay, I think so. I believe there I are. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you are the Vice Provost for Values and Leadership and the Director of the Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs Herrenstein Center for Values and Leadership, that word's important, at Yeshiva University, which puts you in a perfect place to discuss leadership. Now, I will say that intuitively, I think that leadership is a big problem in our Orthodox communities. And as I was preparing to talk to you, Erica, I was trying to define for myself what that means and why I feel that we have a lack or a dearth of proper leadership. And I realized I don't even have a proper definition of the term. So perhaps we can open up with you simply telling me what is the definition, as best as you can define it, of leadership? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And we could give the simple Peter Drucker definition that is a leader. A leader is someone who has followers. But that also doesn't tell us anything about the moral quality of leadership. And I think that we've seen, certainly in the last century, the atrocities that were committed because of the evil agenda of leaders without a moral core. And so I, I, I struggle with the simplistic definition of leadership, and I'd like to elevate it and to say, it's not only the leader is not some, only someone who has followers, the leader is a person who in collaboration with followers, so it's less hierarchical, um, is trying to achieve uh, a set of goals. Now, those goals may be political in nature. Those goals may have a social justice orientation. Um, sometimes the leader is a person who leads in a family dynamic, right? That may be the patriarch or matriarch of a family. One thing that's always intrigued me, Scott, is the difference between uh, perceived leadership and uh, and role leadership. And sometimes you're in a room and there's someone who has the assumed position, right? They have the right business card, but everyone knows who really is the authority figure in the space. So those are, those are interesting to me. I think that um, maybe some of what you're talking about, I mean, I, I'm trying to understand your conundrum on lots of different levels. And one of them may be that uh, people who are in supposed positions of power, particularly in the political world today, are people who aren't accessing moral leadership, who don't represent us, who don't, who aren't role models in a desirable way, um, who are spending most of their energy, frankly, trying to get reelected or trying to stay in position rather than trying to move the needle on important issues of the day. Okay, that is very helpful. I want to ask you, along with what you said, that a leader in collaboration with his follower is trying to achieve a set of goals. Is there a specifically Jewish form of leadership which might tweak that a little bit and be uniquely Jewish? 
Yeah. So I, I actually, it's interesting. I've been doing a year of writing and videoing and podcasting on the Torah of leadership. So it's a, a, a it's, it's on the weekly Parsha and it's inspired by, um, by my teacher and mentor, Rabbi Sachs. And I always include a Rabbi Sachs quote and um, I'm putting them together in a, in a book and I've been writing the introduction. And as I'm writing the introduction, I'm trying to prove in quotation marks that Tanakh is really a leadership manual. It's not, you know, if you look at Breshit, if you look at Genesis, that's not really a guide to how to have a healthy family dynamic, right? It was, you know, when you think about a lot of the problems that are caused by, for example, favoritism, favoritism is pretty terrible in families, but favoritism is actually very generative when it comes to leadership, because when people are selected for roles and then they rise to those roles and then they get selected for future uh, responsibilities based on past experience and performance, you can start to understand that the process of selection enables people to become higher and higher, increase their platform of influence in a very in a very important way. So. I don't actually feel that it's uh, that it's uh, synthetic. I feel it's organic to look at the Torah as a leadership manual. If you'll notice, not only are leaders selected for particular qualities that they have or particular actions, we could certainly talk about Moshe and all the social justice work that he does that's elaborated in, in Shemot Bed in Exodus 2 before, before God visits him at the Sned and the burning bush. You sort of understand he's exactly the person you want. And then you look at Moshe's sense of responsibility to make sure in his absence, there'll be someone else in place. So there, before Avraham dies, he wants to make sure that Yitzhak is married and has his own children, because you can't grow an idea unless there's the continuity of that idea. You can't have the continuity of an idea unless you have a leader who is going to be committed in every generation. That's really interesting. I want to go back to something you said just a moment ago about the perhaps dichotomy or paradox between favoritism and its harm to the family, but its positive generative aspects when it comes to leadership. Because if we do look at it, like Yosef is an obvious example. Yosef was designated for leadership and thus he became Moshe Rabbeinu also. Moshe was living in a palace unlike all the other Hebrews at the time. This is not a normal family situation, quite clearly. And if you look at the Bidrash, it's even less normal. If you look at what happened with Miriam and Aaron, exactly. obviously, this is a very complicated situation. Is the Torah saying, are Jewish sources implying that you have to choose one or the other, that effectively having a healthy family structure is on some level inimical to raising strong leaders? Are they almost at odds with each other? Yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm not advocating. If you want to raise Jewish leaders, make sure that your family is as dysfunctional as possible. Please don't. Uh, you know, that's that's not my Torah. But um, I I actually, uh, Howard Gardner wrote a book called Leading Minds, where he looked at a number of figures. I, I can't remember if it was 11 or 12, a number of really important world figures, Mahatma Gandhi, Eleanor Roosevelt, et cetera, Winston Churchill, to try to understand, was there something about the childhood, the background, the intellectual interests? Was, was there something that could be, uh, you know, bottled, if you like, you know, understood and bottled. And and he and he, he wasn't conclusive about it. It wasn't as if the family dynamic and, and where you are in the family dynamic, if you're first, if you're second, there's been a lot of writing on that also in the arena of leadership, your birth order place, how does your birth order, and we assume you know, the Bechor, the, the firstborn gets Pishnaim, gets the, gets twice as much because the Bechor perhaps is is the most positioned for for responsibility. And yet 
that's not really primogeniture does not win the day in um in Bratiate and and in many later narratives. So I, I'm I'm not suggesting that, but one thing that is very clear. And it's true in a lot of literature, uh, and it's it's true in Homeric sense also, that leaders often spend, leaders in Tanakh often spend a very serious portion of time separated from the family unit. So whether that's uh, Avraham who breaks from his, his father dies and he breaks from his family unit, whether that's um whether that's Yaakov, who spends time and his his time as a fugitive away from home becomes a very transformational time in his own growth and the build of his family and the buildup of the tribes, of the Shvatim. But then, of course, you look at someone like Moshe, Yosef and Moshe, uh, Yosef away from his family for a long time, um, and then Moshe, who's really effectively abandoned but not really abandoned but 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 left outside of the family unit then you look at someone like ruth or someone like esther right esther is an orphan um and uh, there's this beautiful midrash where david uh it says that he can't lead and akarish baruch god says to him what do you mean you can't lead you know like you you don't have parents you don't have support look at esther right so that to me is a fascinating sort of midrashic it's like such a beautiful use of the rabbinic imagination is to imagine leaders in conversation with other leaders in very different time periods and very different circumstances, but sharing this universal sense of resourcefulness. You know, if you don't have parents, you've got to work creatively. You've got to have survival instincts. You have to be resilient. You have to be creative. It was all these things that you have to be, you have to be courageous and you can take risks you know, Scott, my kids cross the street and they are adults and they're all married. And you sort of want, could you give me a call when you finish crossing the street? Right. I know exactly what you mean, for sure. And and actually, I think we'll we'll come we'll have some studies that talk about the influence of cell phone use on leadership development, because I'm I, I it's interesting. Someone brought to my attention that in the Israeli army, um, Parents are given the the number of the mifaked, the, the 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 captain, and you have to wonder: does that create less dependence or less independence, um, more parental involvement? And you see in these characters, you know, and and you can go. You don't want to go there. You can go to Harry Potter or the Boxcar Children, or you know, you can go to Homeric literature. It was the idea of a serious period of separation where someone has to find their own uh, core. Uh, and their own strength to lead. Um, and I think that comes from some kind of crucible often. The one person that I'm confused about is Ruth. She's the person that I would not necessarily have said is a leader. Everybody else is a king or a, a tribal head. She was David Amalek's great-grandmother, but I wouldn't have thought of her in the typical sense of a leader. So why do you say she was a leader too? So I love the book of Ruth and I've taught it a lot and I think about it a lot. And uh, I recently just said uh, on a podcast, actually, that one of the great biblical moments for me is uh, the is uh, Pasuk Hey, the fifth uh, verse in the first chapter of Ruth, where Naomi gets up, Vitakamhi, right? I mean, that verb, Vitakam, you lose everything. You lose country, you lose family, you lose status, um, it, you, you lose your sense of self, the core self. And then you say, am I going to stay here? It just really as a, as a function of the randomness that put me here, or do I have human agency? And even if I lose nothing, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to leave. So Naomi has that act of leadership. And then you look at Ruth and Ruth 
Ruth is totally marginalized. When the women of the town gather and they say, Hazot Nomi, they don't even recognize her. It's not like they say, oh, and who's next to you? There's nothing. She is totally invisible. And actually, I think invisibility uh, invisibility often motivates people to lead. They say, you know, I walked into this room and no one noticed me. And I don't want that to happen to someone else. So I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen to someone else. And then you look at what Ruth does to create visibility in the story. She's so bowled over when Boaz says, who God, who godly, like I, I heard all about, you know, all the things that you've done because there's a real depth of humility there. And there's a sense of this is what I have to do. And if it humiliates me to go pick in the corner of the field, but that's what I need to do in order to survive, that's what I'm going to do. And so there's something about the fact that she has nothing and that she is nothing um, that begins the journey into somethingness. Um, Scott, I don't know about you. We don't know each other well. Hopefully we'll get to know each other a little bit more. I've moved a lot of times in my life and I've moved across continents many times in my life. And every time you go to a new place, you are at zero. But the worst part is since you've been at zero before, it feels like you're at minus, right? You're in those negative numbers. And then the question is, are you going to use your agency to rebuild yourself and hopefully rebuild the things that you care about? Or are you just going to allow circumstances to bury you? And I think that's that's the question throughout Tanakh always. What are you going to do with the circumstances you're given? So in that case, let's keep on sticking with Root for a moment. In the sense that you mentioned before that someone has to have followers, you're working in collaboration with your followers. Would you say that Boaz was one of her followers? Is she a unique kind of leader because she didn't really have followers? Like, I still don't understand the leadership aspect. I understand the moral greatness of Ruth. I don't right. necessarily see her as someone who led people to achieve a common goal. Right. So again, it depends on how many people you need to lead in order to see yourself as a leader, particularly a leader in a family. You know, um, teachers are absolutely leaders in a classroom. Many teachers don't see themselves as leaders, but all the activities that they're engaged in um, the course of a day, for the most part, are, are leadership roles. Now, I'm not a person who believes that everyone is a leader. I think that's part of the problem we have today is that everybody is a winner at everything. And so we're, uh, you know, I always quote the New York Times, uh, the, the New Yorker cartoon where a young boy comes home with a large trophy that's bigger than himself. And he says, look, dad, we lost. Uh, so we live, <laughs> you know, we're living in the look, dad, we lost, but I got this amazing trophy anyway. And that's not, that's not great for leadership. Um, well, and everybody's special. Nobody's special. That's part yeah, of the problem. Yeah. But I want to go back to to Ruth because you ask an, an, an important question and I want to throw out another framework and it's a framework I think about a lot and teaching leadership. And that is in, the introverted leader versus the extroverted leader. So I've often asked uh, rabbis this question, you know, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Uh, and I'll use Susan Cain's understanding that an introvert is someone who's nourished by being alone and an extrovert is someone who's nourished by being with people. It doesn't mean that introverts don't like people and it doesn't mean that that extroverts don't like being alone on occasion. It's where you get your energy from. And when you think about Jewish history, Jewish tradition, uh, rabbinic tradition, so many of our leaders have been on the introvert scale. They they begin in the book, right? They they take their nourishment often from feeling close to God, uh, from being in a deeply spiritual place, and then they use that in the, in the way that they um, they begin to influence others. Um, I think for many of us, we think about leadership, we think of extroversion, we think of someone who's like standing on the table at camp, 
with a microphone. Um, and they're, you know, they're leading the songs and they're, and sometimes those people flame out. Um, and sometimes those people get the training that they need so that they, you know, that they, they, they manage charisma. Um, but I, I actually think that the good Jewish leadership sort of balances that introversion, extroversion and good Jewish organizations make sure that you get both types of leaders because you need both types of leaders to be, to be successful. When you look at Ruth, you're looking at someone whose invisibility was the source of her strength. You know, she has a baby. She gives that baby to Naomi. Naomi names that baby. Naomi names that baby with a community of women. And what Ruth understands, I think more than anyone in that book, perhaps besides Boaz, uh, or in collusion with Boaz, and that's why the union is so powerful, she understands the power of redemption. Of course, you can look at the word Gaal and Geula and Goel all over that book, all over that book. She's searching for Goel. But at the same time, she is a goelet. She is constantly redeeming the situations that she's in. So she understands, even in small ways, um, how a, a small human interchange of the giving of barley is redeeming someone from a state of hunger, right? The giving of a child is redeeming Naomi from a state of depletion caused by the whole dissolution of her family unit and her community. So every time you have the capacity to give something back to an environment, to redeem that space, you've actually created the pathway for Malchut, for, for the leadership of, of David HaMelech. You know, you need to be the redeemer. And that's what I think we're all here to do, right? As the Rambam says it in the Moron the job of the Torah is tikkun nefesh and tikkun guf. So what's the tikkun that you're prepared to do? And, and that's why I think we have so many models of leadership in Tanakh. It's basically saying there's not one model so just figure out what you look like, who you most want to resemble, and go do something. Go do something and make a dent, and make Steve Jobs dent in the universe. <laughs> wow, that is a really interesting interpretation of Ruth. I really never thought of it in those terms. Let me ask a little bit more about that introversion idea. When we talk about the, as you mentioned, the camp counselor on the table, getting everyone to sing, who may or may not flame out later on, but the introvert who becomes a leader, are they a leader because of their introversion? Again, you mentioned Susan Cain. Yeah. There are obviously advantages to being an introvert, but usually we think of that as not being compatible with leadership. It might be something you can still lead, but it's almost despite you're being an introvert. Are there aspects of introversion which actually contribute to a leadership model? Yeah. Well, I want to I want to share something that I, I I've thought about a lot. Um, Jim Collins in Good to Great writes about the liability of charisma. Charisma is an asset, and we want leaders who uh, one writer calls it zeal appeal, right? We want people who feel zealous and they care about a cause and they can be persuasive and passionate about the things that they care about. And at the same time, we worry sometimes about the narcissism of that, right? Or we worry about taking up all the air in the room. When you look at Moshe, Moshe's great uh, quality, according to uh, according to God's description, you know, in Sefer Bamidbar, is Moshe's anivut, right? He was the most humble of all people. Now, why would you say that to two siblings who are challenging him? You know, oh, you, you know the guy you're talking about? Say he's the most fantastic person. Why would you say he he sees himself as the lo lowliest person? Well, you don't have to make him any lower than he sees himself, right? It was he he doesn't see that he's worthy and he doesn't need you to amplify it, that lack of worthiness uh, because he struggles with it himself. That to me is so important. We all have to manage the inner critic. 
um, the inner critic who lives within us, right? Some people call it the imposter syndrome. Tara Moore, who's another leadership writer, doesn't like to call it the imposter syndrome because then it sounds like a medical problem that you can't do much about. Uh, we're not taking, you know, we're not taking pills for it, but we do have these inner critics and they speak loudly to us. And I worry sometimes that when you're in the front of the room, you sort of can't hear the whisper in your ear that says, who is in this room with me? Who needs my attention? Who's at the corner space? Who's in the back? Who's in the dance circle? Who's sitting on the side? And they'd come in if you invited them. But if you don't invite them, they're not going to dance. That's why I said, I think you've got to have a confluence of forces of introversion and extroversion because people pay attention to different parts of what's going on, the different dynamics in a space. I want to ask you, Sort of a difficult question, because when you said before that our job is to look at the very many models that Tanakh and Bidrash and Chazal have provided us of different types of leadership and find the person to whom you most relate or whose leadership style speaks to you. This is my question, and it's a question that I struggle with myself. How do we make sure that we don't impose on Tanakh or on the Midrash our own ideas and then blame it on the character rather than authentically deriving it from the character that we're looking at? Let's say, for example, that I relate to a certain character. Well, I might then start giving that character, perhaps subconsciously, my own characteristics and thereby justifying things about myself that maybe shouldn't be justified. Mm. I don't know if that question makes I'm, sense, but I, you know, I, I was Scott, worried about I'm that. I'm trying to figure out... like who you're talking about, because that, that could be really interesting. And we could do a lot of work on that. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, that's why I think it's important to be a, an honest text reader to the degree that we can is to see the messages, not, not imposed on a, a verse or a story, but actually really arising and surfacing from that story. I wouldn't overly project oneself onto a character. Um, I'll just talk for a second. You know, there's, there's a, in, in terms of leadership theories, there's the great men theory. How do you learn leadership? You're going to read about the great men. Of course, there's a woman problem there, but you're going to read about the great men. So I'm going to take out a biography of, of Lincoln or maybe, um, maybe something of Churchill's. And I'm going to read about the situations that they found themselves in and that importantly, uh, they put themselves in and then say, oh, what what can I learn about running this day school slash JCC slash synagogue slash whatever it is you're doing? It doesn't work that way. It's because you can't you can't decontextualize the leader from the circumstance. And we don't know what we would have done had we been in the Civil War or had we been in the Shoah or we were fighting on the front lines of World War Two. So part of the, that's that's one of the reasons I think that reading Reading about great leaders is really important for inspiration and to make you feel, what what do I have to do that's special? How do I contribute in my own way? But not because we take it apart and say, whatever they did there is what I'm going to do here. It almost, it almost feels ludicrous when you say it. That's very true. I actually remember reading about Bill Clinton, our former president in the United States, how he had read in following the great men theory about the importance of not getting a lot of sleep, how great men sleep fewer than five hours a night. And his own helpers, George Stephanopoulos, I believe, and others talked about how he made the worst mistakes of his presidency personally and politically when he didn't get enough sleep. And yeah. therefore, he tried to take a certain idea, which he saw in other people, apply it to a very different situation, his own physiology, and it failed him. Yeah. Oh, that's a great example. I love that, Scott. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to use that. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's interesting. I mean, you know, when you tell people what is your method or what do you do? 
um, David Mamet, the playwright, uh, told people that he 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 really didn't share his writing process because then you'd say, well, if if I if I do the same process, I'm going to get the same outcome or the same result, and then you just feel pressure uh, to be someone you're not. Um, having said that, I really think that um, leadership is not comfortable, and we like to be comfortable. We don't like to be in spaces where there's confrontation. And there are difficult decisions and they're decisions which aren't going to make people happy. Um, and we shy away from from that um, in, in great measure. And as a result, we don't lead the way that we're supposed to lead. You know, you and that could be professionally. You know, you know, you have to fire someone. Um, you know, you have to change something that's going to make people upset. And then you say, you know what, I just I don't have the activation energy for that. So I'm just going to I'm going to I'm going to stop here. And as a, we live in a society uh, where we're comfortable all the time, right? We control the weather in our homes. We control, you know, so many aspects of life that couldn't be controlled before. And we expect to be comfortable. So if you tell people, you know, you want to join this board, you want to be president of this company, you want just prepare yourself for a lot of discomfort. Someone says, I'm, I'm not signing on for that. Or give me a really, really big salary, but they don't realize that the salary is not going to make a difference when it comes to the day-to-day quality of life. Right. I want to go back to something you said before about being an honest reader of the text. And obviously I agree with that. I used to run a yeshiva that was all about honestly reading the text. And then I have to ask myself, this relates to the question I asked before that, If we look at the text, I might then derive the conclusion that it's right to show favoritism because Yosef became a fantastic leader, and perhaps that was a direct consequence of the way that he was treated by Yaakov. And the fact that there were at least 12 other children who were very upset is a different problem. But if I want to build a leader, I should do that. Now, if I'm an honest reader of the text, that is a fair reading. Admittedly, of course, we have to read the text in conjunction with Chazal. And there are many, of course, statements of Chazal saying that was not a good thing. Nevertheless, I can still, going back to that idea, pick and choose what I want to find in the text at times, because if I simply read Brashit, I'm going to get some lessons in leadership, which might be counterproductive. Right. Counterproductive, again, in the family dynamic. But when you're thinking about leadership and as someone who runs a lot of leadership programs and teaches and, and runs cohorts, we we select students all the time, right? We select participants for programs all the time. We read resumes. We have interviews. And we often pick people who have shown previous experience, right? Uh, Or they have a willingness to learn and to hear feedback. So uh, I can say I, I love to identify talent. So I'm always looking for people who, and trying to make matches uh, in this organization or, or this job, or can I, you know, and, and part of that happens when you invite people, like we talk about again, the power of invitation, you know, to talk about the power of invitation, you invite someone and say, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to go out for coffee with you. Did you, have you ever thought about doing X, right? Uh, As a teacher, you know, I try to seed that with people who haven't thought about going into education. So I I think I I wouldn't call it favoritism per se. I would say, I would call it, um, you know, talent seeking. I think we, we have, people talk about the talent pipeline, we need a talent intervention. We're having an absolute crisis when it comes to talent. Um, we need good people to lead. And a lot of good people say, wow, it's 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 such a hard world that they have followers are so difficult. People, why would I be the president of this? And, and everyone will, you know, mock me and talk about me at the Shabbat table. And no, I don't want to go into, I don't want to be a rabbi. I don't want to be a teacher. I don't want to be a head of school. So who, who are we going to get? 
unless we change it to be a more noble culture, unless we identify people and say, you know, 20 years from now, you could be X or, or, or let's meet and set you up with the right people to put you on that path. If I want to take that further, and in Yaakov Avinu's defense, he does not need my defense, but at least as Chazal understand him in the Midrashic imagination, he didn't choose Yosef alone. He chose each son for a specific task. He was right. also searching for talent. Levi was the one who was going to be in the Beit Midrash, and Yehuda was going to set up Goshen. Each person, right. the text in Breshit emphasizes Yosef's leadership potential and qualities and the favoritism, but according to Chazal, everyone was a favorite in a different way. So Right. So I'm looking at it a little bit differently than you, Scott, in the sense that for me, they're a family, but the family is also the metaphor for community, right? So in ter- when you think about it in a community and you say different people have different functions and sometimes someone is going to get a nicer coat than someone else. And we don't like the nicer coat, but we also don't want the responsibility that the other that other person assumes. When you look at Yosef's story, um, what he was able to achieve and again, talk about being separate, separated from your family and, and also alienated by your family, hated by your, your siblings, um, but, but maybe overly loved by your father. So love didn't work for you and hate didn't work for you. And now you go somewhere else and you see this pattern. Sometimes people are not successful within their families because they either don't get the love that they need within the family or the family can't see how special they are, but they go somewhere else. And someone else does see how special and someone else, you know, Yaakov's demise in many ways uh, in, in, in his fall becomes Pharaoh's rise. Right. And it was, uh, the, the, the use of Yosef to really understand the economic horizon, to prepare for the future. I mean, it's such a striking thing to come from Yosef, from Yosef, Yosef to make an economic strategy for an entire country. And you say to yourself, here's a person, he always thought he was destined for greater things. But no one else wanted him to be destined for greater things because they wanted to be great themselves. But they, they didn't do the work of greatness, right? So I, I look at Yosef. Yosef's story is a really, really complicated story for someone who really had to, he couldn't count on a plan. He made a plan for a country. And yet, could he have planned for the fact that Potiphar's wife would grab his his jacket and throw him into, could he have counted that he'd been thrown into a pit? So maybe as a result of random acts where he suffered, he understood, I have to make a long-term strategy to relieve people of suffering. And that's turning your pain into a purpose. And that's really, I think, if you talk about anything particularly Jewish, not uniquely Jewish, but I think um, certainly in history and in, in our sacred texts, it's uh, it's turning pain into purpose. That's fascinating and inspiring, actually. Let me go back to my first question. And now that you've given us some biblical models and talked about what leadership is, I had said originally that I feel that we lack real leadership in much of our Orthodox society, in much of our Jewish society overall, living here in Israel. It's not just orthodoxy, it's in general. Our leaders seem to fail us. Now, I want to ask you, do you think that I'm right, or do you feel differently that we have lots of great leaders out there? I don't mean there are no great leaders. I'm going to ask you about some people who are great Mm. leaders, but in general, is there a lack of leadership, or is my intuition incorrect in your opinion? Um, I I guess I would would say it a little bit differently, if that's okay with you. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I work at Yeshiva University. I am surrounded by remarkable colleagues, educators, rabbis, emerging rabbis, students. I, I, I'm just, I, like, I feel like I'm in, a, in this amazing leadership laboratory. 
Um, so I I feel hopeful every day. I don't I don't have that sense of despair. What what where I get despair is opening the newspaper, and that's really changed for me. Um, I would say you know the political corrosion, unfortunately, that's in the United States, that's in Israel, that's in the UK. It was we're reading about this all the time. You know, one leader after another convicted of of crimes or suspected of crimes of fraud of you know it's like I, I i don't even know how to express the shame that we have had a former president and a former prime minister of israel in prison right it's it's it's, it's mind-boggling and so again i'm going to go back to the the call leaders in tanakh had a call god called them sometimes a human being mordechai calls esther it was there's a calling there and the idea is that there's not one call there are multiple calls for multiple people and the question is, what's your calling? Is This isn't for someone else to do. I, I think that there's going to be, maybe this is the optimist in me, Scott, and I'm going to own my optimism, that there's going to be a backlash to all of this corruption. And we're going to see a new generation of people who say, we're in. We're going to do this. Now, that's going to take more. I, I, the good people are out there. What it's going to take is the book that I haven't yet written, and that's going to take different kind of followership. Um, I, I have a book here called Courageous Followership, but um, we haven't translated it into Jewish um, idiom. Uh, I'm concerned that we are so critical of leaders and we do it on social media and we don't we do not know what we do. We are ruining the field. So every time you do not say thank you, you do not appreciate, you do not hire, you speak badly, you use your Shabbat table to rip apart things that, that leaders say, you don't realize the shrapnel that you're putting out in the Jew for our Jewish future. So I'm just going to ask you, please stop. Talk lovingly about people. Find the good. Um, encourage people. Identify talent and grow it. That's what we need to do. I live really in in a suburb of D.C. I live only a few miles from from one of the world's perhaps most powerful cities. And I see good people and I daven next to good people who work in administrations and who work in government. I'm even married to someone who works in the government. And I see the sort of commitment that people make in terms of public service. So I, 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 I feel very hopeful. I just want to get I want to get all of the negativity out of the way. Not all of it. Because some of it keeps us honest, but but that's that's critical and constructive feedback. That's not that's not gossip. That's not the rumor mill working overtime. Yeah. So that is optimistic, and frankly, I actually agree with your optimism. If I wanted to be Yay! cynical, yes, but this is the orthodox conundrum. So at times, I have to be cynical, regardless. <laughs> my job. If I wanted to be cynical, what I would say is, in the old days, in the early days of Israel, let's use that as an example, prime ministers and presidents weren't being arrested because they were honest. Then we come to 10, 20 years ago, and now they're being thrown in jail because they're corrupt. Now we come to today, I'm not speaking about anybody in particular. I'm talking about the culture. And they're still corrupt, but they don't get caught because now they're smarter about it. So as opposed to saying, to, and on some mm -hmm. level, I'd almost say, but that's, that's the cynic in me. I don't necessarily so I, think I that. I think the wheels of justice right now, I think the wheels of justice are moving. I think when you're in it, you can't always see it. But I think uh, I think we're holding more and more leaders accountable. Um, sometimes it takes years to do this kind of work, and justice work is is work that requires a lot of patience and conviction and endurance. Um, but you know, if you think, oh, everyone's going to get away with anything, that's not true. It's just not true. No, not anybody. Just the people who are at the very top of the pyramid. But again, I'm being cynical. Yeah, you're being cynical, and I. I 
I don't know. I I think um I think we're watching right now. We're watching people get caught and have to own up to um, their transgressions. And like I said, it's going to take a long time. It doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And it doesn't mean it isn't happening now. Okay, I hope you're right. And frankly, if I want to be more honest, because now I'm not playing the cynic, the fact that we have a former prime minister who was in jail, a former president who was yeah. or is in jail, I don't even remember, on some level, that to me, it's obviously depressing, but it's also hopeful because their power did not keep them out of trouble. Correct. They had to pay the price regardless of the fact right. that they were powerful people that might have scared the judges from doing their job properly, and it still worked. So mm. that's the positive side of that. Yeah. Let me ask about institutions, because one thing that has bothered me is that institutional leadership, I don't mean necessarily any given institution, but sometimes it ends up being what uh, it creates a type of thing that Gary Wills in discussing the Catholic Church calls the structures of the seat. He was speaking about the mm-hmm. papacy. Obviously, we don't have that. But you end up protecting the institution, even though it's with goodwill. It's with a, a positive desire to, to affect good in the world. And at the same time, in the end, people get hurt because the institution becomes more important than the people who are part of that institution. I can say from my own experience, when I used to run a yeshiva, if there was ever a case of expelling a student, which did not happen often, but it sometimes happened, and we used to say, and I think with justification, no student can be bigger than the yeshiva. And if he's hurting the whole, sometimes, I don't mean that someone has to pay the price for the whole, but if if that will help the whole, then maybe expulsion is necessary. But sometimes it's not always as noble, and sometimes even if it is noble in terms of goals, the re- result is that institutions end up protecting their own and maybe undermine the positive goals of leaders. How do you see institutions in general as playing a part in this? Yeah, so um, it's a big question. Um, I I actually, again, the optimist is going to come out. Um, there was a time when I think, uh, certainly in the rabbinate, we covered up for breaches of ethics, certainly in abuse cases. Uh, which, um, you know, thank God there have not been many, but uh, even one is too many. Uh, you know, it's nothing, it's nothing, you know, when people compare um, what what has gone on in individual isolated rabbinic cases with the Catholic Church, it, it's just like you said, structures of the seed. I've, I've read quite a bit um, about the, you know, hierarchies that keep people uh, protected. And if you, if you read enough, you understand that these are very, very different um, structures and systems. Um, we don't have that sort of centralized power right. um, by by and large, uh, by and large. And I think that there was a time when that was true. I think it's become less true. I think there were some high profile uh, rabbinic scandals in particular or scandals involving executive directors of organizations and boards that might have formally protected someone understood that they were going to be held liable and responsible because they didn't come forward. I am always interested, Scott, not in the not in the um, the immoral leader, but in the enablers. Right? And was when you look at uh, the story of Yehud and Tamar, Hiram, he's an enabler, right? You hmm. look at, uh, at at the other Tamar story, you see another enabler in these stories, and they're in the shadows, and they're always they're the way that 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 people who are immoral get away with things is that there is someone there protecting them, and and so I think. Uh, I think about that a lot in cheating, right? And cheating, which is which is always something I think about a lot in the academic community, and certainly with AI and the developments in, of AI. You know, they're always going to be cheaters. I want to work with the enablers to say you need to see your response when you show your paper or when you when you give over that homework. I mean, you're an enabler, and and it's not who you want to be. So so don't be that person. So I. I'm 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 less concerned about institutions from that perspective. My my bigger concern about institutions today 
is the role of wealth and affluence. And that sometimes we protect uh, people who have affluence within organizations, even though they, they may do something that's uh, that's inappropriate, um, that uh, but but we you know we we protect them because the institution uh, needs it from a financial. And I, I don't want to minimize the importance of financial stability in all organizations. I just want to hold people accountable, no matter what the wallet is. And um, I do I do want to introduce something that I've I've thought about a lot and written about very little, and that is in the categories of tshuva. Chuva ben Adam lemakom, you know, between oneself and God, between oneself and others, between oneself and oneself, we have not added chuva to organizations. And I think- What does that mean? Way, in many ways, we might have had a relationship with an organization that disappointed us and maybe disappointed us in a phenomenally impactful way. And yet the institution is not the same. It's 10 years later, it's 20 years later, the leadership has changed, the orientation has changed, and we're still holding on, right? We're still carrying that burden. And when you think about it, you think to yourself, oh, could I make a list of institutions that have offended me or hurt me in some way? Because of course, institutions are about the people in them. And when the people change, the institutions change. And so I, I think I think it's upon good people to be able to review that list and and acknowledge the change that institutions make. Because sometimes you'll hear someone say a piece of gossip about an organization. Yeah, that might have been true a long time ago, not true now. So let's give let's give everyone a chance. You wanted a chance. You wanted a new chance. You wanted a fresh start. So let's give those organizations a fresh start too. They they deserve that. Frankly, that's something which I never thought of before. The idea of chuva bein adam le organization. It's a new concept, which I have to consider. And definitely now that we're coming closer to Elul, the season of tshuva, it's something to consider and to take seriously. I also want to mention that, in all honesty, I've never heard Chirab mentioned in any context except when leaning through Parshat Vayeshev. It's not that I've ever thought about him at all except for being Yehuda's friend. To think of him as an enabler is definitely a new kind of perspective, which is going to give me a lot of food for thought. Let's talk a little bit more about institutions, but I, I hear what you're saying, and I don't reject that at all. One problem I have, I'm curious if you see this, and this is not only institutions, but I think that's where it maybe is most belate, where it's most obvious, is a problem I see in our Jewish world of nepotism. I feel that too often leadership is defined by bloodline. You mentioned before the power of wealth in being protected, but I think sometimes the last name plays perhaps too much role. And people are given leadership roles who may not be deserving of that simply because their last, my last name is Khan. So I'll use that as an example. I don't want to indict anybody. Simply because their last name is Khan, therefore they're able to be given a certain type of role. And that bothers me. And I feel it sometimes squeezes other people out who maybe should be in a role instead, but well, it doesn't matter because you know, his dad was the rabbi, so now he's the rabbi. Maybe there's a concept halachically of the chazaka, which would allow that on some level in some context. But I think sometimes it goes further than that, that you know, a father wants his son to succeed, as, as I want my kids to succeed. I don't blame them. But if it's an institution, it's not up to me as the father to decide how the institution is going to go and treat my son. My son has to earn it on his own. I feel too often that doesn't necessarily happen. Do you agree right. with me? Um, I think it's I think it's complicated. I, I think it's complicated, and I and I actually want to go again to my my leadership manual, the Tanakh. I don't know the last time you opened up Divrei Hayamim, but when you look at Divrei Hayamim, what you see is you know this person led and he was good, but then he got turned bad, and then his son was bad, and it was there. There's actually it's saying sort of 
what's going to be on your record, right? And it was when when we write the book of generations, when write your own family chronicle, the literal divrei hayamim, yeah, right, the literal divrei hayamim. What what have you passed down from one generation to the next? And you can see that even in hereditary models of leadership, like kingship, or or um, or the kahuna. You see like Eli and Chafni and Pinchas, right? So what we're saying is the fact that you may even technically inherit this position doesn't mean that you have morally inherited it or that you are worthy and deserving of it. That's one of the things I find most striking is that every model of leadership that appears in Tanakh has stories, narratives that undercut that same model, that show that the fact that you were this doesn't mean that you're that, doesn't mean that you, um, and certainly doesn't mean that the next generation has that. I don't see nepotism as much as protexia, right? Vitamin P. Um, I, I think it's, I, I don't know of many places where, because I was the executive director, I was the rabbi, the next generation, you know, because I was on the board, the next generation. I, what I see is that there are certain families who really take leadership seriously. They create an expectation that in their family, people will lead. And I'll just say, I was very blunt about it with my own children. Um, when I wrote my first book, which was a leadership book, I dedicated to the four of them. And I I said it outright for everyone to see, right? That they should grow up to, to take leadership roles in their communities. And I don't know how many people feel the honor and nobility of what that is and the responsibility. This is not about one generation. Jewish continuity is is matters because the next generation feels it's important to lead. So I would say that in that sense, sometimes I've seen in the leadership work that I do that that there's a, a leadership DNA that there are families who talk about it, take it seriously. They make sure their children understand their philanthropic causes and why they're important to them, the institutions that are important to them. And so, you know, if some if if a family says, you know. This institution is important to us, and we expect the next generation to to shepherd and steward it. Um, does that person belong on the board? If they're competent, then they should be there. Like I always think of great leadership is character and competence. That's what builds trust. And so hopefully the next generation, you know, will have that um, in in a family. So I I don't quite see the nepotism. And in terms of protexia. it's an unfortunate reality of life, which is if you know someone. And you have an in and someone, you know, I don't know if it's a bad thing. I don't know if it's a bad thing. Okay. Some people don't have it. I'm more concerned about it, honestly, especially given the Supreme Court decision on the affirmative action front, right? When you see people who are trying to go to college for the first time within a family. So I just want to share a little moment. So my, uh, my, uh, one of my boys uh, finished dental school. And if you had the same level of degree you could hood your your child, right? In other words, to be a dentist. You could go up on stage. So if you were a doctor or you were a dentist or you were a PhD, you could hood that person. Now, okay. in the audience, there were people who at graduation whose children uh, clearly were the first generation to go to college. They were all standing up and cheering when that kid got on stage. You should be hooding those kids, right? You worked, in certain ways, you worked so much harder. And to me, I was... I have to say, although it was a beautiful occasion, and I was very proud of 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 my 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 son and his accomplishments. I felt that we we didn't honor how the work that it takes to take someone and and change the trajectory of a family. And so, when I think about leadership, I think a lot about changing the trajectory of an institution or of a family in the work that you do. And we see examples of it all the time. 
you continue to express optimism, which I think is fantastic. And I'll continue to express problems. You can tell me why they're not as bad as I thought they were. You mentioned character and competence. What about charisma? We talked about that earlier. Charismatic leadership is something which does scare me. It's something which I think it's sometimes abused. And even when it's not abused consciously, sometimes the person starts to believe his own PR and it becomes a real problem. And this type of charismatic leadership we see in the rabbinic sphere, we see it in the political sphere, and I find it to be among the most dangerous forms of leadership. And I'm wondering if you can tell me, is there, so to speak, an antidote? Is there a way of avoiding it? Because obviously we're all drawn to charisma yeah yeah in fact um you know i i mentioned jim collins spoke before and and he he in addition to writing about the liability of charisma his level five leadership is someone who's extremely driven for a cause and also extremely humble right so that combination is exactly the opposite of charismatic leadership in fact he gives yeah, he gives some characteristics of leaders who were sort of brought in from the outside of a culture because they were seen as, you know, like the personality and they they run this Fortune 500 company and this one. And then they and they flame out very quickly in a position or they're because really they're just looking at this institution as the stepping stone to their next, uh, you know, the next accomplishment. Uh, or the next promotion or the next high grade in in, in leadership. So I, I share um, not the cynicism. I share the reality, uh, the reality check of what it means to understand how to use charisma effectively. It, it, you know, when leaders are flat in intonation and affect, it doesn't move us, right? I, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I have the great, great schud and privilege of running a center in in Rabbi Sachs's honor and promulgating his teachings as, and I was myself a student of his. You know, to sit in his classroom. It was magisterial, right? I mean, he understood. He was an, he was very much an introvert who understood when you have to turn on charisma, and where you have to, you know, so that you can make a bold statement, and so that you can take people somewhere, and you can help them uh, aspire and imagine and dream. And if you're if you have a flat affect and you are not moved by things, I, I, um, I read this, uh, I'm trying to think of who wrote this about energy. If you're a low energy person, you tend to hire low energy people. And then the institution starts feeling low energy. And sometimes we need that, that sense of, of energy of commitment. So, you know, I, I think one of the protect, uh, the protective fences, the Siag, uh, the Siag of Manhigut, is um is something that I read in Primal Leadership, which is a book by Daniel Goleman, who and 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 two co-authors, who was one of the pioneers of the emotional intelligence movement. And now he he's applied it to leadership in a number of contexts. So Goleman says something very interesting. He says, the more senior you are, the more feedback you need, the less feedback you get. People hmm. are afraid to give you feedback. They don't give you feedback because they're afraid of you know, of tarnishing your star. They're afraid that you're going to move away from them. They're afraid that they're not going to enjoy all the benefits of being sort of best friends with the CEO, the head rabbi, the, and so they don't get feedback. So the most important thing that a charismatic leader can do is put in place many feedback loops. It's the, it's the old Doris Goodwin Kearns team of rivals, right? And as you want to, you want Lincoln's leadership, you have to put people in place who actually disagree with you at every turn. And that's not what we tend to find. We tend to find a lot of yes people. Uh, a lot of leaders surround themselves by people who say, how high should I jump? You know, how right. much can I do? How can I create this for you? As opposed to leaders who say, um, I really disagree with that decision, or I'm not really sure that you showed up well in that situation. 
You know, there's a great scene. I won't remember the exact character, but in The Best and the Brightest by David Halberstam, mm. he talks about a certain undersecretary or something like that who's working with President Kennedy. And he at one point had had it with the way that Kennedy was working on a particular issue. It probably had something to do with Vietnam because that's the nature of the book, yeah. but whatever it was. And this person was in his office. He goes, that's it. I'm going to walk in and tell President Kennedy exactly what I think and basically tell the president off. And as he started walking from his office, he started thinking of all the pressures on Kennedy's shoulders. And he walked closer and he started thinking about all the people who are telling him so many different things. And as he got even closer to the Oval Office, he began thinking about about the impossibility of being the president of the United States, effectively the most powerful person in the world. When he walked into the Oval Office, he said, Mr. President, how can I help you? And mm. I think that really speaks to what you're saying. It's very difficult to find people who are going to speak truth to power directly. We can speak about journalists speaking truth to power, but someone who's actually in that inner office who can tell the king the truth or tell the president the truth, that's pretty rare. Yeah. And, and, and that's why you have to, first of all, that's why there's always a Navi with the Melech, right? There's always the, you know, there's the Natan to the, to the David, but um, you have to, in a sense, if you are a leader today, you have to hire your own prophet, right? And as you have to say, you're sitting in this office and I need you to tell me when things aren't going well. And I need you to be honest. Um, I've had, uh, you know, the good fortune of working for many uh, CEOs uh, and uh, and having some truth telling conversation, and I and I like to think of it as uh, I'm I don't want your job, I, I'm not after your job. Uh, I want you to be great at your job um, because we need you to be great at your job. And this this particular thing is not working, or this is hurting someone, or or you didn't notice such and such, and that's a problem, or this is an issue that you really need to be paying attention to. Uh, so um, it's hard to be a truth teller. You're right. You don't want to get fired and you don't want to get belittled and you could be told off. All those things are true. And perhaps this relates to what you said before about Rabbi Sachs, that's all, and charismatic leadership. Maybe this is splitting hairs. I don't know. But I might think there's a difference between a leader who has charisma or who knows how to use charisma versus charismatic leadership, where the essence of their leadership is the charisma. With Rabbi Sachs, right. there was tochen, there was content, there was deep philosophical thinking behind the charisma that he was able to exude. Whereas some people, the type of charismatic leadership that scares me more at times is the kind of charismatic leadership, I'm speaking in the Jewish world, perhaps in the rabbinic world, where their entire power comes from the fact they can hold a room spellbound, even if what they say is ridiculous. Right. And actually, it's interesting you said that. I, I was once um, uh, speaking with a charismatic uh, leader, and uh, I asked this particular person if they learned regularly, which to me is always a sign. It's always a sign. Um, because, you know, if, if you continue learning, it means you're always in a state of not knowing. And so you have to embrace your ignorance, and that sort of keeps you grounded. And this person said, no, I have no one to learn with. Everybody has something to learn with, right? Or, or learn on your own, or and and uh, and this was this was a person who had a lot of that kind of charisma that I felt was not necessarily grounded in genuine in genuine learning. I think I think that's maybe a distinctive aspect of Judaism is that we want all of our leaders to be learned and to keep learning and not to see it as oh I did that in undergraduate school. Well, that was thirty years ago, right? It was. What are you learning today? Who's she or are you in? You know, who do you go to for counsel? Who's your rabbi? Like the king who has to keep his safer Torah with him at all times. At all times. He's always learning. At all yeah. times. Okay, Erica, let's move on to something more positive now. Instead of speaking about the negative leaders, can you give me some examples of some leaders whom you do admire? Um, who are alive or, or? Whatever you want. 
whenever I want. Uh, well, I wrote a book on Esther, so I, I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, thinking about that transformation of 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 a young girl into into who she became and and the political astuteness that she had. So certainly, it's it's a lot easier always to admire, you know, characters who are not, uh, you know, who are not alive. Well, these are good questions. I, I mean, I, I will say uh, Deborah Lipset is a close personal friend and uh, very involved with, uh, you know, the the years leading up to the position she has now as the as the ambassador um, and the envoy against anti-Semitism. And I would say that um, she certainly uh, her middle name is Esther. Um, I think a lot about about that kind of commitment and trying to do something i mean she, you know she's the token of, of writing about something and uh, d- dedicating your life to scholarship and then realizing that there's the scholar activist and um and i i'd like to see more of that in washington and more of that in israel the scholar activist model the politician who comes out of the academic world i think i think in israel we have a better chance of that we have people who are serious musicians and and uh, novelists who have political uh, opinions and they feel that they as informed citizens they need to take a stand you have that much, i i find much less so in in the states by and large when you speak about ambassador lipstadt she is also a female leader she is an example of female yeah. leadership and it seems that we have at least i think it's pretty clear not enough Maybe we have biblical models of female leadership, but in terms of modern Judaism, there aren't enough leaders, I think, who are women. I think we should try and encourage that. I'm guessing you agree. You can tell me if you don't. But if you do, are there ways that we can try to help develop female leaders who will lead in their own way, using their own unique talents to do so? Because right now, I feel there's way too much of a male emphasis when it comes to leadership. Admittedly, someone might argue, well, Sarara, you're not allowed to, but... Okay, that's that's a halakhic question that others can debate. Assuming we can get past that particular issue, we're not speaking about a king. That's the easy way of talking about it. Right. Then if we're not talking about a king, then and it is a positive value to have women who are leaders, how can we help engender women leaders, help them become leaders? Yeah. So I, I, I in general, I try to be a little bit gender neutral. It's true that I uh, mentioned two women um, and I'm conscious of that. But uh, in, in general, I like to teach in a co-ed setting because we live in a co-ed world. And I think we need to be led by a co-ed a group of leaders because I think that um, and I'll say this, especially post COVID, when it's become a real struggle to get a lot of women back into shul, sometimes men as well. Um, I don't I don't know how it is uh, across the sea uh, if if this is the same kind of issue. You know, if we're if we're being thoughtful and strategic, if we do not re-engage this generation of women um, or actively disengage them by making them invisible, um, they will go out and do other things. They'll lead in other ways. They'll lead in professional ways or in their volunteer lives, and they won't commit the kind of time and effort. Uh, to growing families in a deeply halakhic fashion. So I think there's a, there are long-term consequences of this. Uh, if you pay attention to uh, Rabbi Hirsch's writing on the Torah, you'll notice that he talks a lot about the family, a lot about women, a lot about children. It was, he was also a pulpit rabbi, and I think he understood that he was living in an age of enlightenment where women were feeling increasingly dissatisfied. And if you didn't speak to them and you didn't create a place for them, and what I mean at place we can have a halakhic conversation. No one's right. No one has ultimate authority in leadership positions. Many, many leaders today would argue that as a leader, they have the least authority. Of they, have no authority right. Right. they have no authority. <laughs> it's the opposite um, of Shrara. 
but you know they're the ultimate so, followers right sometimes we we reduce something in an absurd way to a halachic conversation so that we can be totally dismissive of it as opposed to engaging with the complication of it and um you know i i i'm concerned about men and women being deeply engaged in in leadership so i don't i don't feel that it's you know more men or or, or fewer more men fewer women i think that we haven't created the sort of we haven't cultivated the ground to seed a lot of good leadership, whether it's male or female. You know, when, when um, Jim Collins wrote a monograph on good to great for the social sector, because his book had a really corporate orientation, he said, you know, the principles of my, the principles that he discussed in his leadership work weren't dependent on whether you were for profit or you were a nonprofit, right? Goodness and greatness apply equally in both of those environments. There's certain conditions that might be somewhat different. Uh, I would say, he says, you know, you get the right people on the bus and you get the wrong people off the bus and then you determine where the bus is going. In the nonprofit world, sometimes we just need to get people on the bus, right? We're just like trying to get a lot of people on the bus. Um, and and sometimes we make those mistakes. So I, I think a lot of this is really about creating the right conditions in a follow, in a lay professional context, in a following leading context that creates um, that creates success. But I will say that, um, and I'll go back because I think it's really important when it comes to female leadership in particular, to this power of invitation. Um, the best way you get someone to an adult education class is to say, hi, would you like to come with me? Best way you get someone to lead is, hi, have you thought about being on this committee? Would you like to be on this board? Even if the person says no, they feel like a million bucks. You thought that they were worthy of this. And so um, if you read, you know, Sheryl Sandberg, if you read Tara Moore on Playing Big, you're you're reading in the women's leadership space, Deborah Spar was the former head of Barnard. They all write in different ways about women who take themselves out of leadership roles because they assume that they can't have them. So they're prejudging themselves. And what does it mean to, you know, when Sheryl Sandberg says lean in now it's true. Some people need to lean out, right? There, there are, you know, men and women who need to lean out, but for many people, they're managing deep insecurities. And, and unless we say, we think you're worthy, we'd love to see you in this role. They're not going to assume that role themselves. So our job is really our job is to go out and have coffee, lots of people and encourage lots of people and say, I'm oh, happy to call me when you need me. I'm here for you. That's the job. And that's the job when it comes to adults. But you also mentioned earlier, Erica, that you dedicated your first book on leadership to your kids. I did. With an implicit or explicit expectation that they're going to become leaders. You mentioned that Hirsch talks about families and children. And I know you also wrote a book entitled Dreaming Bigger, A Leadership Guide for Jewish Teens. So obviously, there are ways that we can teach children to be leaders. So on a simple practical level, Lamase, if you can give advice to teachers, parents, any mentor of how to get kids to understand the importance of leadership, but the right kind of good and ethical and moral leadership rather than the negative kind of taking charge and maybe we'll call it the bad kind of charismatic leadership. How do we teach our children to do that properly? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, Rabbi Benji Levy and I uh, wrote this book, Dreaming Bigger. It just came out with Berman House. Um, and we sort of shared our wisdom, but mostly we interviewed people who work with teens and we interviewed teens who were and are leading. Um, some of them, they're leading in high school, some of them middle school, some of them are in college reflecting on their high school leadership because both of us were saying, I certainly saw my kids were very active as captains in a variety of different clubs and ventures. And they went on to do that in college in different ways. 
uh, but they were given, unless they were in an athletic context, they were given moderate coaching, if if uh, if almost no coaching. So part of it is saying, one of the things that the teens struggle with a lot is exerting authority with peers, right? It's like how to tell your peer that they need to show up for something or they need to stop doing something. or So a lot of it is helping them in, have a difficult conversation. So we do, we, you know, we use some... Uh, uh, material from leadership experts about how to how to do that, but also ha- helping them understand what it means to recruit volunteers, how to fundraise, and was how to how to fundraise so that they can they can do the things that they care about. Um, you know, I have a I have a I have a book somewhere here on my desk um, called The Inconvenience of Other People by Lauren Berlin. Um, not quite the Jean Paul Sartre hell is other people, but um, other people are inconvenient. I mean, that's just the way it is. They're, you know, they're, they're wonderful, they're beautiful, but they're not always, and they're inconvenient and sometimes they're hellish. And so, you know, when you want to lead people, you can't lead the people you like, you have to lead everybody. And part of that is we gravitate towards the people we know and like, and then we leave the other people invisible and they don't go away. So I think for me, a lot of the techniques and strategies of managing other people are key to leadership success. You can have a great idea. If you can't manage people, you're not going to get there. I hear that. You authored a book entitled Ecclesiastes and the Search for Meaning about Megillat Kohelet. Now, Megillat Kohelet traditionally is said to be authored by Shlomo HaMelech. The text itself says that I was a king in Yerushalayim. Regardless of whether we look at Kohelet as representing the thoughts of Shlomo or an independent philosophy on its own, apart from the life of Shlomo that we know from Tanakh, either way, Kohelet or Shlomo HaMelech as a source of leadership can be very, very complicated and fraught. Kohelet itself is filled with contradictions. Kohelet has an attitude towards life that Chazal even questioned whether it's actually heretical or not. So perhaps... Having written this book, you can tell us some leadership ideas that come out of Kohelet, perhaps it's something which we can take home with us today. Yeah. So the book just came out, uh, just came out through Koren. Um, it's, it's part of the Magid Tanakh series. Uh, I wrote it during I wrote it during COVID, and that was a really hard time, uh, but also a, a good time to be thinking about mortality and governance and illness and aging and work. I mean, lots of themes there that I was doing a deep dive on, Um, you know, throughout Kohelet, there are observations about power, affluence, money, things that we often associate with leadership and leadership governance itself, right? In other words, you know, uh, if you have a young leader, then uh, everyone is like having feasts for breakfast, you know, is the idea that, you know, there's this total chaos. So I I do have one chapter, I think it's called, it's good to be the king, uh, a little bit of Mel Brooks <laughs> there. But what what affluence has taught this person who is aging and saging and cynical and also hopeful um, I think it's pretty remarkable that we canonized Kohelet and we basically said, there's a room for someone, there's room for someone to say, I detest this aspect of life. Um, I struggle with what my purpose is here. I can't find, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do, but maybe I should just sit down and have a nice bottle of wine with my wife. Right. It was, I, there's, there's, a lot there, and I think uh, certainly if if you're as, if you're as cynical as as you say you are, then you must love this book. I certainly love it. Um, I, I play I, the role of a cynic. I'm not sure I'm really <laughs> cynical though. You just play the play. You play the role on TV. Exactly. Um, 
I I think there's something about this book was clearly written for a courtier class, right? It was it was it was written, I think, in many ways as a guide to the vices of and the and the excesses of leadership. So you go from like a parak bet where you know baniti crumbling, like I built all these things, vineyards, and I had all this money, and I you know I have all these dancers, and you know, and what I got from that was a good time. And he's not saying they didn't have a good time, but that's all that he got from it. And then, and then you move on to Parakimmel where you have the time poem and, and you have someone who's saying there are all these seasons in, in the human life. He's not making a judgment about them. He's just saying in the world of reality, you're going to be in a time where you can, where you can plant and you're going to be a time where you have to uproot that which you planted. And there's a time where you're going to build something with a stone. And there's a time where you're going to cast a stone and there's a time of love. And there's going to be a time of war. And to me, from a leadership perspective, you look at the seasons of leadership that people experience their times. They're really, they're involved in a capital campaign. They're building something. There's a lot of energy. Then they're in a slough, right? They're like, things aren't working out. Um, They have to deal with people who don't like them. And, you know, and people give up. You look at Moshe. I mean, it's, it's really, I, I keep going back to Moshe, but because I'm so awed by the longevity, by the endurance. And you say to yourself, at any point he could have caved in. He basically said to God, like, take me, right? And yet, and yet he got us there. And so I think you only get there by recognizing that there are seasons of leadership. Um, there are times when you can build and there are times where you actually cannot build and you should not build. And so part of the wisdom is knowing what season you're in and being able to name it and being able to say in life, every day is not a happy day. We're not in the don't worry, be happy t-shirt, right? We're in the reality is that there are moments where we praise melancholy because we understand that the assertion of happiness may not be fair to someone who's going through a tragedy. Don't tell me what I need to be emotionally allow me to be in the tunnel of darkness because I'll get to the light and I can only really experience the light from the, the range of human emotion and from the place of deep darkness. Wow. That's beautiful. And so important. It just resonates as truth. When you mentioned Moshe, I've, I've wondered myself, and perhaps it's wrong for me to say this about Moshe Rabbeinu, but the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu was only told he was not going to go into the land at the end of his life, meaning had that happened, had Memoriva happened in year one or two, or had he been told along with the people at the time of the Miraglim, you too cannot go in, and we see he, he had moments of despair. Would he have been able to lead for another 39 years as Moshe Rabbeinu, or was it only because he had those 39 years of hope until he, it was dashed at the end? I don't know. It's just something which well, I've wondered. Also, I mean, you do need changes of leadership, um, and you're going into a new you know, you talked about, uh, about, you know, expulsion and keeping the institution, right? So when you're, when you, you're going to a new country and you want a new military youthfulness, uh, you want to, you, you may need another leader. And that's, you know, that's the appropriate for the moment. I think what's amazing is that even after Moshe understands that he's going to die, does he actually ask God for a successor? In other words, it the the you know again that level five leader you're always uh, humble you're always about the the goal the objective the mission um i think the mission is always there and i i guess a lot of people i see when they stop being a shul president and they go oh i can't even walk into that shul or they stop being the head of a day i can't even you know i won't even walk into the building i think to myself okay take a little recovery because you need it and after six to twelve months 
think about what you're going to do with all the leadership experience you've acquired, because we're in this for the long run. And this isn't, I lead this year and I play golf next year. That is not, that a Jewish community does not make. Healthy communities need an infusion of leadership at all levels, at all ages. Boards need to have the composition of people of all financial levels, different professional capacities, different ways of thinking, different ages. That's what makes our community diverse. And it's what makes our community work. And what you're saying now about Moshe and the demand, and I say demand intentionally, the Midrash says it was a demand to God for new leadership. When God said, okay, it's time for you to die, he says the people cannot be left without a shepherd. And he demanded an answer. I read this past Shabbat, Ravrabinovich, that's all, talks about Mm -hmm. that was the unique nature of Moshe's leadership because it was all about the people to the point of even being willing to give up his own spiritual stature. He's willing to challenge God in a way which says, I don't care if you take my olam haba, my world to come, Mm -hmm. but you have to give the people a proper leader. It wasn't even, I'm doing this so I'll be a better person. It's no, I'm going to be the best person I can because I'm dedicated to my followers. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's a stunning, uh, it's a stunning response. Dr. Erica Brown, I want to thank you so much. I learned so much from this conversation, so much in Tanakh and so much about leadership. And I am really appreciative that you shared your wisdom with me and my listeners. So thank you very much. Oh, it's been, it's been so delightful. I could think of a, no better way to spend an afternoon. So thank you very much for having me. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined.
Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>